Bible open in front of you. Are you soft-hearted or hard-hearted? Uh, as, uh, as a bloke, it doesn't sound very macho to be soft-hearted. It kind of implies being slightly gullible, uh, prone to weeping. So are you soft-hearted or hard-hearted? I must confess, as I get older, I find that I'm weeping more. Uh, just to see a great sporting achievement, I start greeting or I, a soppy film, I, I, the, 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 the strings swell and they get me, I'm starting to weep a little bit, and these, so I'm probably getting more soft-hearted in my old age, and, but it doesn't sound very mature to say that, but even having confessed that, I think we can see from our Bible reading already today that it's far worse to be hard-hearted than soft-hearted. If you sat down and read the whole of the, uh, what we know as the ten plagues from Exodus chapter 7 to 11, you'll see how infinitely worse it is to be hard-hearted. Uh, last Sunday I suggested that this part of Exodus is, is like a titanic kind of um, heavyweight boxing match. Uh, it, it has ten rounds. And we saw last week the, um, the press conferences that took place before. We had Pharaoh's press conference in, in chapter 5, and we had God's uh, press conference in chapter 6. Do you remember the response of Pharaoh uh, to the request of Moses to let his, let his people go? It was complete derision. Let his slave labor simply walk away. What jokers? If you, if you turn back to chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. See, on the international scene, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob was kind of an unknown. Mighty Pharaoh running the world's superpower. Well, he was somebody special and he wasn't going to humbly submit to this God of the Hebrews. But in a matter of months, it was all going to change. And God was supremely confident about the outcome. Um, as you read through these verses, and I encourage you to sit down and read through the whole section at some stage, it becomes clear that this conflict has one central purpose that God is the God who will be known. If you look at chapter 7, if we move the slide on, if we look at chapter 7, verse 3, and the next one as well. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment... I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. This is the big theme in the book of Exodus. God was revealing himself in these events. Remember the enigmatic name that God revealed to Moses at the, at the non-burning, burning bush. 
Whenever we see the capitals L-O-R-D in our Bibles, Lord, that is God's personal name. Uh, So you could say, uh, I am a, a male of the human species, and my personal name is Paul. Well, God revealed his personal name to Moses at the bush. Yahweh is what theologians tend to use as this description of capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I am who I am. Or it could be translated, I will be what I will be. God will reveal the glory of his name and the glory of his character through these events in history, the Exodus account that we've got. The Exodus of these slaves leaving Egypt and being brought to the promised land is to help us to come to know the true and living God, to whom today we are all accountable. These plagues, or as the text calls them, signs and wonders, function in that way, revealing something about God's nature and his being that we would do well to pay attention to today. So let's just focus in on the first one just to see the pattern. Uh, back to 7.15, it was read a moment ago. Moses is commanded to, uh, by God to go to Pharaoh with a command and an ultimatum. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the banks of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed to a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, verse 17. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. So there's a pattern set up in the first three plagues. They, they get repeated three times over with a kind of increasing ferocity until we get to the final knockout blow in the tenth round. But why is it that God sends ten plagues? God knows that the first nine are not going to achieve the deliverance. If you take a look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. So on one side of the verse, you have the whole nine plagues with no deliverance. And on the other of this verse, you have the tenth plague and the release of the people from the land of Egypt. So it raises the obvious question, doesn't it? Why the first nine plagues? If the tenth was the knockout punch, why not just jump to that? And the answer seems to be this. This is the God who is revealing himself to us in these historical events. This is the God who will be known. So I can tell you that my wife's creative. Uh, That's one form of passing her knowledge. Or I could show you some of the uh, pottery castles or paintings to you, and you'd have the proof of what I said. And there are times when words are not enough, when actions are required to prove the reality of those words. And that's what we have here. So what does this account reveal to us today about the God to whom we'll once have to give, one day we'll have to give an account to? The first is obvious, that this is the God of power. He is the king over all creation. 
So here's the ten plagues. Water into blood. Frogs. Gnats. Flies. Plague on the livestock. Boils. Hail. Locusts. Darkness. And then finally the death of the firstborn. Now I watched a Discovery TV uh, program uh, many years ago which tried to explain all of the plagues uh, through natural explanations. Although, strangely enough, they didn't deal with the staff being turned into a snake one, but there we will leave it at that. Now, I think there are two errors we can make as we come to these, this account in Exodus. Firstly, there's scientific rationalism that sort of says to us, well, mir- such miraculous events cannot happen, therefore this did not happen. But the Bible is quite clear that God is the mighty creator who, who brought all the galaxies and the planet Earth into being just by his powerful word. God spoke and it happened. And now for this God, these miracles are, are not difficult at all when he can do all of that. We speak of the laws of nature, but the order and consistency that we see going on in the observable world is only the case because God chooses to sustain the creation in an orderly, consistent way, the Bible says. And our creator God is more than able to intervene in his creation and do something that we consider miraculous. The truth is, if we had eyes to see it, all of life is entirely miraculous. But we kind of call it nature. The second danger here is that we only see that God uses kind of the bizarre and the unusual. And what's fascinating to me to observe as as you read these accounts is the way that God often uses and controls his creation for his own purposes. So, for example, the plague of the locusts in chapter 10, verse 13. It actually says uh, that God sent a mighty east wind to drive the locusts into the land of Egypt. And then verse 19, a mighty west wind to blow them all away. There's no doubt that these plagues demonstrate to us God's mighty power as king over everything that he has created. We've seen the chaos uh, that winds and floods can cause most recently in Florida, but also in Pakistan. And we saw the worldwide panic over a tiny little virus. And if we had wisdom to learn it, Such events should humble us. We cannot control this world that we live in. We cannot control nature. And this God who created it can stop us in our tracks and humble every proud heart. Very simply. How foolish to live without regard to the Creator God. How utterly reckless to ignore his word in our culture, and our national life. How unsurprising to see the pain and confusion in our society when we disobey God's word. Now this contest proves the power of this God and that he is superior over all other competing powers and false gods. And so... To begin with, Pharaoh tries to fight back with his own magicians. If you look back at chapter 7, verse 11, um, it shows, amazingly, that they could pull off the power to turn their staffs into snakes. Um, Do with that as you will. I've never seen that myself. And they also, um, when it comes to uh, turning water into blood, they manage to do something that looks like that. 
uh, turning the blood back into water would have been much more useful, being as the whole place was covered with blood. And then during the plague of frogs, they're also able to produce some frogs, which I think is slightly comedic, don't you think? The whole of Egypt is full of frogs. And what do these guys go? Oh, yeah, we can make more frogs. We've got enough frogs. When it came to get rid of the frogs, they're utterly powerless to do that. See, these magicians can display power, but they can't show any salvation. And when we get to that third plague that was read to us by Amaka a moment ago, uh, of the gnats, the magicians are forced to bow out and say, this is the finger of God. This is way beyond them. Now, the Egyptians worshipped a pantheon of gods. Uh, there was the god of the Nile. There was the god of the earth. There were female deities were, that were linked with snakes, and the male gods linked with frogs. You can do with that whatever you want as well. Now, I'm not here to teach you bad theology, uh, but simply to make the point that each one of these plagues shows actually the superior power of God not only over nature, but over the supposed gods that control these elements of, of the Egyptian world. That God can command frogs and to smother the land, then precisely at the point that Moses intercedes, get rid of them, reveals God's unique glory and sovereignty. If you look at chapter 8, verse 9, uh, Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray. Verse 10, tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your house, your officials and your people. They will remain only in the Nile. God cares about the frogs. He's got to, not going to wipe them all out. You do need some frogs. Now, contrary to popular opinion, the Bible is not full of miracles. Miracles happen at points of unique revelation. Um, God's people went through hundreds and hundreds of years without ever seeing a miracle. These miracles happen at key moments of God revealing himself. And the question for us today is, how are we responding to the God that's revealed here in the Bible? The God who's made himself known in history, the powerful sovereign over all of creation. As in the time of Exodus, so the next great moment of revelation of, of, of God is in the coming of His Son. And of course, around that time, we see all these great signs and wonders. And they're there to wake us up to the reality that we are dealing with God. If you see me casting out demons, then you'll know the kingdom of God is here. The finger of God is at work, Jesus says. The signs and wonders of Jesus are the signposts to us, that God's King has come to bring the ultimate exodus to free us from our slavery to sin and to Satan and to restore us to Himself. And so we're left, really, as we come look at an account like this in Exodus, with the question how are we going to react to Jesus, God's King, who could still the storm with His word, who could conquer every disease, who could has complete power control over the demon-possessed. How are we going to respond to King Jesus? 
And there's comfort here for those who've humbled themselves to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We can face life with great confidence, knowing that our Savior is Lord of all things. That the God that we've brought into, been brought into relationship with is the God who's sovereign over all powers, over everything in nature, over everything in creation. There is no other power. There is no other spiritual force greater. And now that we've come to put our trust in God, then it gives us a great peace and confidence within the world. You see, our Heavenly Father has not lost control. Even in the middle of an economic downturn, the pound's running, guilt yields are going crazy, everyone's panicking. God is on the throne. He's not panicking. You don't have to fear in the face of terrorism or despotic leaders invading countries. God is king. The one who controls hail, frogs, boils, winds, and light can be fully trusted. But there's a warning here, isn't there? A great warning. A warning to those who harden their hearts against this God. Pharaoh responded 11 times out of a hard heart. And you see, our hearts will either be hard or soft as we hear what God has done in the world, how he's revealed himself in Jesus. We'll have either a hard heart towards that or a soft heart. And so how is your heart today? You know, you've, on your, you've got an Apple Watch, it'll tell you what your heart's beating, the beat rate, 68 beats per minute. I'm a bit anxious, obviously, right now. It doesn't tell you where your heart's at, but you'll know. How responsive is your heart to the Word of God? Note with me that these events reveal the Lord is a God of both patience and justice. Uh, people sometimes say to me, well, you know, they'd find it much easier to believe in God if he did a miracle right in front of them. But you know what? The evidence of this story and what God before Pharaoh tells us that's probably not true. Pretty spectacular miracles Pharaoh gets to see. Most amazing displays of God's power. And then we get a little progress report on his heart. Again and again, his heart remains hard. He refuses to let the people go. So as the plagues move along, his mockery does disappear. He did come to realize that he was dealing with a powerful God. Uh, by the second plague, he's begging Moses to intercede with this God on his behalf to get rid of the flogs. And after he said, after, after you do that, I'm, I'm going to let the people go. And maybe you recognize that sort of prayer. Suddenly when calamity strikes, uh, there are very few atheists out there. And people try to make bargains with God. They say, well, you know, my, base, my business is facing ruin. So um, maybe I'll make lots of promises to God. And if I go to church every week, maybe would you make my business do better? Or if you are coming up to some exams and students, I know you're having fun as freshers, but exams will come. Now's the time to find the library, not the last week before exams, just a little heads up cue there. Uh, but if you find yourself suddenly discovering the library in your final week, uh, many students will start praying to God and say, Lord, please put into my head the things I never put there before, and then I will serve you. These sort of promises, these panicky promises. Well, Moses intercedes, the frogs die, and look at chapter 8, verse 15. 
But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, what did he do? Did he praise God, say, you are, there is only one God, I'm going to... F-? No, he hardened his heart. And he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord has said. Each time Pharaoh is confronted with the awesome power of God, there seems to be this development. Uh, the first time it says Pharaoh's heart became hard. Then in 8 verse 15, he hardened his heart. The instinctive promise, you know, response, the instinctive response becomes like a decisive act of his will. By the sixth plague, uh, you get the scary verse in 9 verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The determined opposition of Pharaoh was further confirmed and sealed by God. Who hardens Pharaoh's heart? The mysterious answer is this. Pharaoh does. God does. And Romans chapter 9 takes up this very section to show God's sovereign choice at work in both judgment and salvation. God shows amazing patience to Pharaoh, don't you think? But then justice is dispensed. The tenth plague is a terrible judgment, but no one can say that God did not give sufficient warning. Pharaoh deserved no warning whatsoever. He was overseeing such a brutal slavery of the people. But God, in his mercy, did warn him. There have been so many opportunities for Pharaoh to repent and acknowledge God with humility and obedience, but he did not. Many chances, growing evidence, and he squandered every single one of them. Sooner or later, everyone will have to stand before God as judge. And if we stand before him with hard, rebellious hearts that refuse to listen to his words, which ongoingly hardened our hearts, rejected, 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 then we will know that we will have no one to blame but ourselves. Nevertheless, God is a God of justice. There's a reason that there are ten plagues. There's God's patience, but also reveals his justice. Uh, Look at 9 verse 15. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. Why is not God destroyed the wicked already because he's patient and he holds out his arms to a rebellious world calling on us to repent but even if after all his patience we still do not repent it's not as though God's efforts have been wasted look at chapter 9 verse 16 this is what God says to Pharaoh but I have raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Here's God's amazing statement of his sovereignty. 
Pharaoh was actually raised up for this very thing. That his arrogant rejection of God would bring a display to the world of God's power and his justice. God's name, Yahweh, the Lord, is is patient, rescuing God, but he's also a just God who will bring just punishment. And we see that Pharaoh's hard-hearted response is a presumption on God's patience. Look at chapter 9, verse 27. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord's in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail, he says. Verse 33, then Moses left Pharaoh, went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. And when Pharaoh saw the rain and hail and thunder stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. Do you see they've had enough warning? They've remained hardened by hearts. And I want to say to you today, do not presume that there'll be another day given to you by which you may repent. Today may be the last day to give you a chance to repent. Don't waste today. If there's something that we know that we are doing that is contrary to God and His Word, do not keep ignoring the mercy of God. What mercy and kindness? He's given us another day. You've, got, you've had food, you've got clothes, you're in a church, you're hearing the Word of God. Do not despise the mercy of God today and walk out further hardening your hearts. Because there is a day coming when his judgment will come on the unrepentant and it will be an eternal condemnation. See, we see God is a God of uh, both power, of patience and justice, but he's also a God of both judgment and salvation. See, the final three plagues are not for Pharaoh's benefit, but for the Israelites' benefit. If you look at chapter 10 and verses 1 and 2, it explains this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. These final three are for the people of Israel to learn about the Lord. And if you are someone who's a Christian here today, uh, that we are part of Israel's spiritual grandchildren, then we need to learn from these final three plagues, how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians. We are to learn as we read these plagues the penalty for rejecting God. And I think in these last three plagues, we see a vision of hell. You know, after, after chapter 10, verse 4, Pharaoh is no longer given any challenge to repent. Just the consequences for those who remain hardened in the rejection of God. There's destruction, there's darkness, and there's death. Think about the destruction. It talks about the locust devouring all that was left after the hail. In chapter 10, verse 15, no good thing will be left. And that's what hell is. The place where no good thing will be left. 
darkness. A terrible sign of God's judgment. Everyone utterly alone in the darkness. Uh, Chapter 10 verse 21 describes it as a darkness that could be felt. Verse 23, no one could see anyone else or move about for three days. People in foolish bravado said, oh, I, I want to be in hell. That's where all my mates will be. As if it's some great bar. You're going to be hanging out with your pals forever. No, you're going to feel utterly alone. And this is why it's so striking, isn't it? As you come to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That in the middle of the day, there were three hours of darkness. What's happening? God is unleashing judgment against sin. Jesus is experiencing hell. He didn't deserve it. Totally righteous. But he willingly came to to pay the price for the sins of those who put their trust in him. He's experiencing hell for those who will come and find shelter under his forgiveness. In a sense, the cross is the place of God's judgment for those who are in Christ. And yet it remains for those who are outside of Christ. Destruction, darkness, and lastly, death. That final awful judgment on the Egyptians. The death of the firstborn. Severing loving relationships. So there'll be a consciousness in hell, the Bible says, but it's not the sort of consciousness that we would want to call life. It is utterly sobering, the destiny for all those who remain hardened in their rejection of God. But for those who belong to God, these chapters promise deliverance. God is going to provide a means of ultimate rescue for his people. God's promise uh, is that they will be finally released from their slavery and leave in freedom to the promised land. And this is the Bible's picture of of, um, our rescue from slavery to sin into becoming the people of God and belonging to him. The cross of Jesus Christ is the place of both the the judgment of God, but it is the place of my salvation, of my deliverance. For I no longer live under the fear of the wrath of God, the judgment of God. He pays the price. He satisfies the wrath of God in my place. And so we look at the cross and we sing with joy about the cross. It's my deliverance. He is my salvation. I have nothing left to fear. Not even death itself. For I will not experience the second death. What will be your response today towards God? Hardness and disobedience will lead to judgment. Or a responsive heart that listens to God and trusts the salvation He has made through the amazing provision of His Son in your place. 
Well then, my friends, that is salvation, peace, and joy, and certainty, and hope. What is your heart like today? I'm telling you now, your heart is telling you where your destiny is. And I would urge you to humble your hearts before this mighty God. For he is against the proud, but he exalts the humble. And there's salvation today. My Christian friends, I hope you feel the weightiness of this. Uh, the Apostle Paul said this, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And say, be reconciled to God. If you're not reconciled to God today, please come and talk to me. I would love to share with you how you can be reconciled to God, how you can be right with Him. You can talk to Him yourself and say, sorry, thank you, please. Sorry for my sin and hard-hearted rebellion against you so far. Would you please forgive me and change me so that Jesus will be my Lord and that He be my Savior. Will you change me today? Change my heart that I may... Trust the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he died in my place so I can be forgiven and right with you. You can pray that prayer today and be right with him. And if you need some help, come and talk to me. And you'll know the God of power, who's the king of over, over all creation, the God of patience and justice, the God of judgment and salvation. Let's pray. Eternal God, we come to you, our hearts sobered by what you have revealed to us in your word, what you did in saving your people out of Egypt, what you've done in order to make a way of salvation through your Son. Soften our hearts if they are hard. Grant us repentance towards you and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you for what peace and security we can have in Christ today. And Lord, would you move in every single heart here, even at this time, that we might find our hope and joy in Christ and know your salvation. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing this final song. Behold.